Worlds Knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is finally episode 300. Um, I did a calculation the other day. If you wanted to sit there and roughly, well, listen to all 300 episodes, it would take you roughly 25 days straight. And it's actually quite a bit more because there are a number of episodes that go over. Um, what we're going to do here is we're going to show who's running this show. We've done it in different ways over so many episodes, but to know what you know now, having come through the year called 2020, uh, people have all these weird ideas about what's going on and the corporate overlords and all this. It's, it's not that. It's the Vatican. It's always been the Vatican, and it is still the Vatican. And there are people who can demonstrate this maybe in better ways than the logic that we've laid down to do it, like people who have gotten into law and cited cases. Um, remember back on the Australian episodes we did, they were citing a place called the Seed Corporation. That's with a C, by the way, uh, in Bern, Switzerland. Uh, the idea that Jesuits, I think it's actually stated 12 of them, of all things. Uh, but we are reasonably sure that it's the Vatican on top and the Jesuit order. You will also recall that back in the day, when the Jesuit order was put together, somewhere along the line, it was stated in Roman law that they could never be the Pope. Well, the Pope we have now is a Jesuit. Uh, there's so much to this that there's no way in hell we could get this into a single episode. This episode may go long or it may split in two because it's just so much to get through. But I don't know. Did I drop anything? Welcome, Jason. Good morning. And well, there is a lot to get through and all roads do indeed lead to Rome. And who is it that guards the Pope at the Vatican? Indeed, it is the Swiss, isn't it? Yeah, of course it is. The masters of the universe, some of them reside in Switzerland. This has been known for a long time. Early on on YouTube, before they started scrubbing all the information that mattered, you know, you could see people covering the idea of the hexagon, the number eight, uh, all these things that they were showing about uh, particular places in Switzerland. But the Swiss, yeah. There it is. Some of the masters of the universe are there, um, and we know the Seed Corporation is there. But when all is, is said and done, it's not that hard to logically put this together. This is the reason what we're about to talk is one of the reasons I decided to cover the box saga. I knew people were going to have trouble with it, but I'm sorry. Um, the whole story, which we'll get into a little bit here, just to reiterate, the whole story of a huge army sneakily going in there and wiping a place out and then changing the name, which we will cover to what they change it to uh, shows you this has been done throughout history. And so if you want to think about a long time ago, if the box saga has legs to stand on, that's a long time ago. And so the actual history that precedes what we know, we all know is unknown, but there's the line in the sand, isn't it? Um, and in the case, we'll cover this too. Uh, H E L was supposedly the name of a place that was almost Eden uh, in the telling of the box saga. Happy people, uh, very spiritual, all these things that have come down to us in myth told in the box saga. And the Vatican goes in, knocks it over, kills it, renames it, and then adds an L. Two L's is 33, by the way. And that word becomes the worst thing you can imagine, right? It's what happens to bad people when they die, according to the Vatican. Um, if you went to a dictionary uh, or go to the older dictionaries, there's something like 50 words that use the prefix H-E-L or H-E-L-L, -L, and only one of them is negative in connotation, and that is indisputable proof because words have meaning. So we can begin to piece together what's gone on here. Uh, to put it 
bluntly, the black blanket that is covering us all nearly everywhere in this world right now emanates from a place called Vatican City. There it is. They were the only people that had enough wherewithal to take over as much as they did and then to control it basically through the minds of men and women using religion. Um, that was the underlying control, but there was so, so many other layers of control. It gets into banking and everything else, but I don't know. We're going to jump in here sometime around the founding of what we call ancient Rome, Jason, to show uh, beyond doubt that what we call ancient Rome, whatever that true history might be, it simply became the Vatican. Um, and there's really no disputing this. And the funny thing about it is if you try to go look it up and research it out, it's not an easy thing to do. Wouldn't you imagine that it would be easy to say, where exactly is the fall of Rome? Where exactly is the founding of the Vatican? What is the relation? Not easy information to get to. But there it is, Jason. According to tradition and myth, on April 21st, 753 B.C., Romulus and his twin brother Remus, the twin sons of the god Mars, found the city of Rome on the site where they were suckled by a she-wolf as orphaned infants. In actuality, the Romulus and Remus myth is said to have originated at some point in the 4th century BC, and the exact date of Rome's founding was set by the Roman scholar Marcus Terentius Varro in the 1st century BC. There are also variations on the story, but once the date of 753 had been settled on, all subsequent dates were expressed ab urbe condita, or from the city's founding. The Romulus and Remus story seems to be pure myth, however, as archaeological evidence demonstrates that there were human settlements on the Palatine Hill as early as 1000 BC. All right, so for people who haven't figured it out, we're living under a death cult right now. Basically, most of the, the things that we don't like about this world, to include our law, have the death idea in them. What is not frequently understood is the Palatine Hill was once a cemetery before all this happened in this supposed prehistory. If we went, remember when we covered Ovid, uh, there's a little bit of that tale in there. And in Ovid, they're telling the tale of Saturnus, the Saturnian idea, um, this magical place called Arcadia, ruled by a king holding the Saturnian name. All these kind of prehistory things are written in by Rome later. So things like Ovid are no different than so many of the things we have. What it is, is an attempt to somehow communicate and encode aspects of what probably really happened and make them heroic and tie them to the things they feel are worth being tied to, which is the entirety of the Trojan War. Those are all the heroes. What Ovid did later was tied the founding of Rome to the losing side of the Trojan War or the Troy, the Trojans, because they were heroes, right? So those are the dudes that come over to do this. But let's not get away from this. There's no separating the Palatine Hill from the Vatican and from Rome. This was a cemetery from the get-go, if you can follow the logic there. These are not easy things to know about or to get into, but you will further notice that when we get up to the point where we mention a few things about the telling of one portion of the box saga, they rename the place that was once H-E-L, a supposed Eden, uh, to include the word wolf, while they encode the Latin name of Jesus into it backwards. Um, we have been taken for a ride, and we've been made simpletons to not be able to see such obvious things. When you get back to your adult mind and you take things apart, like right now, as I'm going through this, I'm doing the same thing I always do. I'm noticing that Remus is actually Sumer backwards. Is there a connection there? I don't know. I've never looked, but it's interesting that Remus is Sumer backwards. 
there's all that, Jason. The mythological figure of Romulus is credited with several religious institutions. He is said to have founded the Consuelia Festival, in which he invited the neighboring Sabines to participate. The ensuing rape of the Sabine women by Romulus's men helped to embed both violence and cultural assimilation into Rome's origin myths. Romulus is also credited with founding Rome's first temple to Jupiter and offered the Spolia Opima, the prime spoils taken in war in the celebration of the first Roman triumph. In epic mythological fashion, Romulus is said to have been spared a mortal's death, being mysteriously spirited away and deified, which is, of course, something that many Roman emperors like to claim about themselves later on. Yeah, but it's also, you know, this whole deification and the gods thing, I have a problem with all of it. And it started for me when I began to realize what's really buried in Greek myth. And how is it that these PhDs that are going to tell you what the, the Trojan epic is about totally miss that it's all tied to the sky clock? Totally miss that when someone dies, they're always mentioning, oh, a flower, this particular flower sprouted from his blood. They're tying it to the sky clock. They're telling you about the time of year. And right here, you're being told that in their myth, uh, the founder of Rome, which ends up being Romulus, because I think he kills his brother, um, Remus, uh, and this is almost certainly tied to the Gemini idea in ways that would take you weeks and weeks to plow through and winnow down to talk about. Um, these ideas are not what we've been taught in school. It's not gods. They're not, for the life of me, I do not accept that they think there's some gray-haired dude sitting on a place called Mount Olympus or otherwise. These are aspects of nature which have been personified. And as you begin to take apart the language, like uh, you, you'll read in some old epic myth where they will refer to a supposed god as the genius of spring. Uh, you will also notice that we get in here, we're going to cover the gens Flavia. Gens is another way of saying the generation of the name Flavia or the bloodline of the Flavius family. Or You, you see what I'm getting at. Um, this word follows us up into the idea of genes. As a matter of fact, this is so all-encompassing. From the first bullet point we did, you were informed that they started marking calendar dates from the founding of Rome from the old Latin ab urbe condita. Well, we even get our words from this. Herb is almost certainly where we get the idea of urban. My old brain isn't going to help me with condita right now, but I want to go to conditional. I'd have to think about it. I'm just not making the bridge at the moment. But from the get-go is the idea of violence and that the victor is king. This is probably a new way, if I had to proffer an educated guess, whenever the hell this was, this is a new way of living. There's this older way of thinking about things, which is touched on in the box saga, where people are not killing each other and taking each other's stuff. Uh, they're all working together for a common good, for lack of a better term. This almost seems like an age change and a complete change of how society can conduct itself and how they're going to exist. The idea of helping your neighbor or helping aspects of society becomes the mighty take it all and the mighty are in charge. And by the way, you worship the mighty because they're mighty. The religion of ancient Rome seemed to be an ever-changing blend of various cultures' belief systems. As time passed, things grew increasingly diverse. As different cultures settled in what would later become Italy, each brought with them their own gods and forms of worship. This made the religion of ancient Rome polytheistic. One of the largest pantheons was drawn directly from the Greeks. 
The ancient Romans also worshipped spirits. There were spirits of the rivers and trees, household spirits, and family spirits. So the problem with talking about this is people have been pulled so far off this track that they forget why it's important. It's respect for nature. It's what it is. And it's more than just respect for nature. It's recognizing that we can say this river has a spirit because of all the amazing thing, things a river does. Um, and, and by the way, if I go look at this river, it's really not like this other river. There's something different about these two rivers. I could almost say the spirit of this river is different than the spirit of that river. And these get into things that matter mightily which were never lost in ideas like alchemy, but have been totally lost in, in our time because they've been downed as pagan ideas or other things. But why were they polytheistic? Why could anyone bring their beliefs in and, and get along? Because they're all doing the same thing. They're dealing with what later came to be called in Christianity, the acceptable year of the Lord. And that's it in a nutshell. It's always been about the sky clock. It's always been about the natural world because without the natural world, we do not exist. And as we get in here, we're going to endeavor to show that already um, there's about to be a takeover starting in Rome, and it's going to come from the Middle East, and it's going to come from roughly 24 priestly families. Now, people like to label this Jewishness and all these. It's really not. It's 24 families, and they were special families within their own community because they were priestly. And this will hopefully play out a little more obviously. And for anyone who wants to know about this a lot more, there's a very well-written book called The Secret Society of Moses. Now, the overall ideas that are expressed, like if you took the whole book and said, this is the idea how Rome was taken over. I agree with almost lock, stock, and barrel, but there are tons of things woven into how they get there that I don't accept at all, but it doesn't matter. The overarching idea is showing you how we got to be where we are. How did Rome come to a fall? I'll tell you how it came to a fall. It was taken over from the inside, and then once that happened, it morphed into the Vatican, and once that happened, all the supposed actual royal whatever it was in the day, the idea that God put these people on the throne and there was something different about the blood of these human beings that was special and the idea that a ruler actually cares for the people they rule over, all that goes out the window because they start swapping them out. And where do they swap them out? From the roots of the 24 families I mentioned. Um, and this is a difficult thing to lay out in a couple hours, but we'll see what we can do here. And it really wasn't that hard, was it, because of all the self-centered decadence going on in Rome for however many years? Consider that in relation to today. Right. Think of us, Jason. We're no damn different. We did the 60s. There's the decadent onset. You start to see, back in the day, Billy Graham in the 60s when the miniskirt came, he equated it with mini morals. And the man wasn't wrong. But the problem was, is the young people were saying, oh, that guy's an old fuddy-duddy and he's killing our fun. And yeah, it is fun. And yeah, it's great to live in a time like that where nothing much matters and you have a good time. The problem is time goes on. That will always be the problem. That is the problem with corporation. Corporation can reach the pinnacle of its success and usefulness, but it won't just sit there and run at that level. It will continue to go further and further and further every year of its existence. And this is the problem with becoming decadent. 
because there were people running things that knew if you could introduce decadence, the moral value would fall. And once that happens, all this other crap can begin to fall in place uh, because in a way we quit being adults. When that decadence sets in, as it rolls forward, the adult-like spirit of any given culture seems to fall to almost not infantile, but juvenile levels. After all, how is it that I can turn on my TV in the 21st century and three of the popular programs are TV shows that are cartoons aimed at adults? When I was young, the only freaking cartoons in this world showed up in two places on Saturday morning for a few hours for the children and for the children, there would be a couple shorts in front of a drive-in movie. That was the reign of cartoons with a few exceptions like Disney full features. But even the Disney full features are up to the same game. Can we put these cartoons down? Can we get adults to cry? That was the benchmark. Because once you've done that, you've lowered an adult mind. They're crying for a freaking cartoon. That is beyond, I, I mean, how do you even describe what that really means? But anyhow, I'm wondering. In relation to the miniskirt concept, it's not so much that the miniskirt itself was bad, but it now becomes a standard. And then someone or something is going to come along later and want to outdo it. And the morals drop a couple more points after that, don't they? Well, it's based on the religious ideas we can still see. What do you call what a nun wears in the Christian world? You call it a habit. Why do you call it a habit? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? The habits that those women put forward are going to be very conservative. The idea of being married to divinity, all these things will come with that habit. Well, we're no different. We just don't call it that. The miniskirt comes out and everyone's eyes pop out of their head. Well, in a year or two, everybody's seen a miniskirt and it doesn't have the same effect. It's a new habit. It's been normalized. Drugs are no different. What do you think addiction is? Addiction is just a habit. So in many ways, you could show the takeover of our world connected directly to the idea of habit. And that could be connected to decadence or any number of things. And again, it could even be tied to corporation. They can't just get to the best they can be. They've always got to keep going. The miniskirt can only be so short, but once that wears off, now you got to come up with something else. That drug that makes you feel so good is only going to make you feel so good for so long. Then you're chasing your tail. So there's got to be another way to go or more, 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 more. And this shows that human beings are creatures of habit. And that is a big part of what gets leveraged in the takeover of societies. Roman worship was divided into the public and the private. Families would honor their household spirits, while the Roman state had colleges of official priests to ensure that its actions met with divine approval. Families asked for the blessings of the spirits before any special family event. A portion of every meal would be thrown into the fire as an offering. Any household slaves present were also expected to worship the same spirits as their masters. Like most of the ancient world, Romans believed that spirits gathered around crossroads. It was therefore common to find a small shrine or campita set up wherever paths or roads would meet. These shrines would have four altars to honor the spirits in each direction. There was also a regular festival of the crossroads called the Capitalia. 
All right. So first of all, these ideas are not gone from our world. And anyone who's read James Shelby Downard can understand that through the Masonic influences, um, where bridges are built, where dams are built, where overpasses on freeways, there's a whole thing you could learn about these because it is still viewed that these negative spirit entities hang here. Um, but there's a whole part of this that relates directly to nature, which James Shelby Downard also starts to show you. Did you know that if you go look up, like, there's always this idea of we built a bridge or we built a dam, how many people died? There's a reason for that. It's like unreal. As I started to look in it, how come when all these other things get built, there's not as much human death around? And at first I thought it was more fear porn, but then I began to realize if you go dam a river, you're damming an artery of the earth. You're basically blocking an artery of the earth. It's an assault on nature. Um, the other thing is a bridge. So for all of known history, people came to a river and they either had to find a place that was shallow enough to cross, which means it's not a common thoroughfare, or they were in going with the current and used a boat to get to the other side. A bridge breaks across that idea. So these are kind of some of the occult ideas um, going on here. But there was a part in the beginning. Oh, the idea of spirits is where we started here. Again, we've lost what this actually, from my point of view, how it should be thought of. When you're talking about spirits, you're talking about nature. In this period of time, was it common for someone to understand that their breath was their spirit? In our period of time, we're covering our breath, not understanding that we're covering our spirits. And again, that plays into the habit thing that we were just talking about. We got into the habit of not remembering what's important. We got into the habit of not understanding what your spirit is. And so even down to the family level, they're attributing that they fit into nature somehow with the spirit idea. But it probably goes much further than that because it's going to deal with your ancestors and what happens when you die. And again, we've lost our habit now has to be to forget about all these things and then to believe what we're told about them, which unfortunately in our era comes from the most hypermaterial you can be, and that hypermaterialism is science currently. Roman religion involved cult worship. Approval from the gods did not depend on a person's specific behavior, but on accurate observance of religious rituals. Each god required an image, usually being a statue or relief of some sort in stone or bronze, with an altar or temple present to offer prayers and sacrifices. Requests and prayers were presented to gods as a trade. If the god did what was requested, called the nuncupatio, then the worshipper promised to do a particular thing in return, the solutio. This trade was binding, very much like a contract. To persuade the gods to favor the requests, a worshiper might make offerings of food or wine, or would carry out a ritual sacrifice of an animal before eating it. The Romans believed that their gods or spirits were actively involved in their daily lives. Because of this, sacred meals were held in their name during certain religious festivals. It was accepted that the god actually took part in the meal, and a place was set for the god at the table, with invitations issued in the god's name, and a portion of the food served was set aside for the god to enjoy. So let's try to reframe this a little bit. By the way, this is no different than the supposed American Indians doing a rain dance. If there was nothing to it, why did they do it? And don't try to make the argument to me that these were idiots, because I don't buy 
Um, they lived in nature. They know a lot more about this world than most of us currently do for that simple fact alone. And they were probably much more healthy, which means they were thinking much more clearly. But let's go back to the opening words here. The Roman religion was involved in cult worship. Well, you and me. Uh, our culture is the cult. Every religion that ever has been in this world could be described as a cult if you look at the meaning of it. And yet here's another thing that our habit has been tapped to spin our heads around because a cult's a bad thing, isn't it? Right? How many times has the news tried to tell you that this terrible cult or that terrible cult is doing thing or to call any religion that wasn't of size a cult? This is how the habit gets pushed around. This is how the habit gets created to make a fine point. But what we're really talking about here is how can I simplify this idea? Okay, we're a Roman family and we're rich, but we know that we live in nature and we know for us to have the things we'd like to have, like a nice home and things to eat and a harvest, that we have to interact with nature. So what we're going to do is per personify it and we're going to make requests, no different than the rain dance. We need rain. We're going to do this dance because um, we recognize what nature is. It's the be-all and end-all of this place, which science has worked mightily to get us all to forget. Um, that's what's going on here from my point of view. And when you get into thinking in this way, when you go back through the myths, they don't seem so okie-dokie-hokie anymore. You can all of a sudden quit thinking like, what was with all these idiots that lived all these thousands of years ago? They're like kids believing in all this nonsense. And then you come to find out you're the freaking kid believing in nonsense um, because nature is what nature is. And without it, we do not exist. And so the habit of our time has been to move us away from these truths. Throughout the history of Rome, numerous mystery cults would surface and later be lost. These cults were generally founded upon legends or sacred stories, with an example being the tale of Orpheus, while others had a basis in other cultures, such as the cult of Isis, the Egyptian goddess. The members generally knew the stories were pure legend, but they provided a model for their followers to obey. These cults had often expensive, long, or trying initiation processes, which differed between the cults, but prospective members were promised with a path to a better atmosphere and an atmosphere that fostered social bonds known as mystai. These bonds were generated due to the fact that most of these cults regularly practiced common meals among members, dances, ceremonies, and rituals, and the aforementioned initiations. The focus of the cult, such as the focus on Orpheus among Orphic cults, did not necessarily dictate the theology of its members. The legendary tales were meant to guide members, but the deities involved tended to be a lesser focus. Mystery cults were present and generally accepted throughout much of Rome and provided a unique theological experience for their members. Here's another thing that the modern habit of our time has done to the way we think about things. And it's not wholly for bad reason, is the idea of a secret society, which is basically what we're talking about here, it's a bad thing to most of us. And part of the reason is because we're excluded. Um, so that's one reason a lot of us think it's bad. But another thing is, like with, with masonry, we can see they've, they've lost their thread. Uh, what they once were, they no longer are, and they're up to no good for the majority of the population. And not only that, they classify anyone who's not involved with what they're doing is less than themselves, profane or other words. But here's the thing. These things did not go on for no reason. 
And so the idea of cults and secret societies became something else in the modern habit. But I'll ask a simple question. Is anyone venture a guess? Like, what's a common thing people like to see and get all afraid of and say bad? Oh, here's one, the black and white checkered floor. There's one, you put that online and people lose their damn minds. Um, and it's ridiculous. Because first of all, you don't know what you're losing your mind about. You don't even know where it came from. You want to know where it came from? It came from the floor of the supposed temple of Solomon. That magical place, which has probably done more to affect our world than almost any other thing I could think of, if all the research is even near correct, uh, in the ballpark of correct, um, this thing supposedly lasted for about 30 years. And yet, to this day, every Masonic Hall is echoing that particular building. Every time you see the checkered floor, that's the oldest place we can see it. So that has to be sourced in some way. So then we can even begin to work up through the past times of the supposed rich and famous in Europe. Is that where a chessboard came from? Same idea going on. Um, so logically, there may be a connection there. But you see, what we've done in the modern era is we've introduced fear and hatred. So we lose our damn minds and we're not able to understand if these things mattered before the current kind of perverse time we live in, this fallen age that we exist in. And I would suggest to you that if groups of people who lived in nature were doing a thing, there was probably a very good reason for it. And that's not the way we think about these things anymore. All we can see is things that we want to hate on. And that's a problem for our time. The Pontifex Maximus, which is Latin for the greatest priest, was the chief high priest of the College of Pontiffs in ancient Rome. This was the most important position in the ancient Roman religion, open only to patricians, or the upper class, until 254 BC, when a plebeian, or the worker class, first occupied the position. Although it was the most powerful office of Roman priesthood, the Pontifex Maximus was officially ranked fifth in the ranking of the highest Roman priests, this was a distinctly religious office under the early Roman Republic, which began in 509 BC, until it gradually became politicized, beginning with Augustus, who ruled from 27 BC to 14 AD. It was then subsumed into the position of emperor in the Roman imperial period. The word pontifex and its derivative pontiff became terms used for Christian bishops, including the Bishop of Rome, and the title of Pontifex Maximus was applied to the Catholic Church for the Pope as its chief bishop and appears on buildings, monuments, and coins of popes of Renaissance and modern times. The official list of titles of the Pope given in the Annuario Pontifico, which is the annual directory of the Holy See of the Catholic Church, includes Supreme Pontiff as the fourth title, the first being Bishop of Rome. There's also going to be the idea of bridge builder and the pontifex idea. Um, but I mean, this is the point we're making. Uh, mainstream or Wikipedia is going to tell you this is early AD, very early AD, right after the non-existent year zero, which our calendar, that's a whole other thing that makes absolutely zero sense. Um, by the way, we're being told that the Romans built a city and they said, okay, well, we built the city. So now all calendars are going to go back to when we built the city which also makes no sense because we have a thing called nature and a sun and a moon, by the way. But <clears throat> what's going on here is the setup's already in. The, the forward-looking control 
of a group of people is already happening. If you look carefully at what we just said, and one of the first things you're going to see is, well, originally all these aristocrats are involved here, but all of a sudden in this magical date, 254, now the plebeians or the poor people or the lower echelons, uh, they can get in. This is the switchover. This is where they're going to start to set things up so that religion and other things can begin to control excuse me, societies wholesale. In the book that I mentioned earlier about Moses, um, the secret society of Moses, they're going to, well, I think it's like 70 AD, you're told that the places in Israel are knocked over by Rome, and this is how those 24 priestly families end up there. But I would suggest to you, whatever the dates were, however long ago that might have been, is that the setup is already going on. And that's where there's no clear distinction in my mind. Can you draw a line in the sand where you can say the true Roman aristocrats are gone? They've been replaced. And I can't. I don't know how to do it, but I can see that it's happened. And I'll, I'll take it all the way through every crown in Europe, by the way, um, as we move along here. But here it is, all the way just barely past year one, <laughs> the magical year one. And it's already turning into this world that's going to be something we've never seen before, controlled by, well, basically the old cliche says it, all roads truly lead to Rome. Now let's get into some very important aspects of the sky clock that was huge in Rome. Helios, which is Greek for the sun, in Greek religion is the sun god, and sometimes called a titan. He drove a chariot daily from east to west across the sky and sailed around the northerly stream of ocean each night in a huge cup. In classical Greece, Helios was especially worshipped in Rhodes, where from at least the early 5th century BC, he was regarded as the chief god to whom the island belonged. His worship spread as he became increasingly identified with other deities, often under Eastern influence. From the 5th century BC, Apollo, originally a deity of radiant purity, was more and more interpreted as a sun god. Under the Roman Empire, the sun itself came to be worshipped as the unconquered sun. Saul Invictus, we're going to get there, but what we're basically seeing here is, you know, you can go to any part of the world, apparently, and they all understood how important the sun is. It never ceases to amaze me how gullible as a worldwide species we are, how easy it was to make the sun evil. And if you appreciated it, then you were going to hell. Blows my damn mind. Does anyone like flowers or fruit or food or light? I mean, come on, man. It doesn't take a lot to get around this hogwash that's been given us from the men in black. What's going on here is this is part of the setup too, because originally back in the day, I imagine, with everything that I've looked at, that there were better ways of living in this world, much happier, people treated each other with more respect, nature was treated with more respect, but there was a holistic view of nature. And see, this is the dividing line. Right now, you might find a temple of Apollo, a temple of Jupiter, a temple of Saturn, but you see what that's telling you is they're looking at it full spectrum. Think of it as a rainbow. So typically a rainbow gets broken down into seven colors. Would you appreciate a rainbow by saying, man, look at that blue. That's really quite a thing. Look, that rainbow's got blue. The thing we care about here is blue. The most important thing in that rainbow is blue. It's not the way it works. The holistic view is to understand that there are chiefly 
described as seven colors. In the same way, back in the day, there were seven luminaries. What actually is about to happen here is they're going to start outlawing the supposed worship of these gods, which are not gods, they're aspects of nature. That's what Jupiter stands for. That's what all of them stand for. And in some way, tied to the clock, tied to the seasons, that's what is going on. And each religion moving forward from somewhere around this point is going to be sectioned off. Christianity is going to be Jupiterian. Hebrew concerns, those are going to be Saturnian. You go to the Middle East, those will be Venus, mostly. What's the easiest to see and demonstrate is the Mercury religions. Anyone know which one went to Mercury? Buddhism, right? That's the mind science. Um, look at it. And you can see. So somehow, all these disparate parts of the world were sectioned off, no longer holistic, taken one color for the rainbow that became their color. We live in this part of the world. Mercury is our thing. But it wasn't outright. I, it's, it blows my mind to think of how it was even done. But that's what's gone on here. So if you go back to the ancient Rome, whenever it may or may not have been, all those temples to all those luminaries, the seven supposed luminaries, is a holistic view of nature. What comes later is the sectioning down. And what do we know can be done on the back of such a thing? Well, we know that when you divide, you can conquer. That's exactly what's going on here. It's going to become an us and them world. But as the sun is elevated, and we'll get into Mithraism and Sol Invictus, which Jason is hinting at here, Sol Invictus being for the elite and Mithraism being for the common run-of-the-mill soldier, because by the way, this is implemented through the army, um, what's going to happen is they're slowly going to outlaw the luminaries, and they're going to convince everyone that really the sun's kind of like a lens, so it's the most important. We don't got to waste our time on all these other aspects. Now it's just the sun. A little bit later, what they're going to do is they're going to flip Mithraism into the Vatican, into Christianity, and then a short while later, they're going to outlaw the sun. Now, as we get through this, keep these things in mind. There's how the engine did it. Um, the particular points, I don't know if we'll ever know them, but it's not too difficult to put this much together with logic alone, by the way. From Helios, we move to Apollo, who is the Olympian god of the sun and light, music and poetry healing and plagues, prophecy and knowledge, order and beauty, archery and agriculture, an embodiment of the Hellenic ideal of Kalokagathia, he is harmony, reason, and moderation personified, a perfect blend of physical superiority and moral virtue. <laughs> There's your thermometer for the fallen age we exist in. So here's Apollo, and at the very end, they tell you he's physically superior and morally he is virtuous. And then they tie his name, as they are tying his twin sister's name to the moonshots, they tie it to the Apollo, the NASA Apollo nonsense. There's nothing virtuous about any of those lies in my, from my point of view. And yet here, we're being told that this is supposed to truly be the sun is like gold. Gold never tarnishes. All these ideas from nature, which make it kind of a pinnacle idea. And virtue, moral virtue, very important. Uh, think of the Vestal Virgins. Do you think that's just nonsense? Or do you understand the value in having a person who's decided not to have sex? Can they truly be chaste and consider themselves more virtuous than the people around them? I would suggest to you they can. Because those are, in fact, animal urges. We know they are. But for most of us, we've got to do 
what human beings do here. We've got to make more of us, which means we're going to do animal acts from time to time. But that should not be the whole kind of makeup of what it means to be a human as it has become in our fallen age with pornography and so many things being as common as the Sunday comics, more common maybe. But think about what I'm saying here. This idea of purity and virtuosity and all these things in Apollo later in our age gets tied to a hoax called the moonshot. And his twin sister gets drug in too later, which is the current ideas about the moon and NASA. Sol, S-O-L, is the personification of the sun and a god in the ancient Roman religion. It was long thought that Rome may have had two different consecutive sun gods. The first, Sol Indigis, was thought to have been unimportant, disappearing altogether at an early period. Only in the late Roman Empire, some researchers have thought, did a solar cult reappear with the arrival in Rome of the Syrian Sol Invictus. This could also perhaps be tied in with influences from the Mithraic Mysteries. More recent evidence suggests that the notion of two different sun gods in Rome was not correct, pointing to significant evidence for the continuity of the cult of Sol and the lack of any clear differentiation by name or depiction between the early and later Roman sun god. Okay, so this is where the rubber begins to meet the road, and within a shorter period of time, the Vatican's going to come to be not too far from the point we're talking about. So if I was going to sum up in a very general way, and there is so much more to it, there's, it's not possible probably to do a show like this and to cover the in- intricacies of all the things we can pretty much know now. 24 priestly families from the supposed 30-year standing temple of Solomon back in the Hebrew or Israelite days or whatever that nonsense is that's been all shuffled around to be whatever they want it to be, um, those families have been knocked out. Well, the whole area has been knocked over by Rome, which is probably pretty historically registered. They get pulled in. They're so good at banking their priestly families, so they almost certainly have all kinds of occult knowledge and other things that went with those special families. They get into Rome. They began piecemeal creating things like an equestrian class, which you'll hear Wayne McCroy talk about. These are the people, this equestrian class, that are the betters, but they're not Roman, and they start to replace the actual Roman aristocracy. Now, along the way, the religions by the same group of people are being influenced. By the way, they're banking, too, if you follow my thread here. Even if this time it's commonly the idea that the banking is Jewish. So they're controlling the money. And they're getting into the families, which Josephus Flavius, which did he exist as a man? I don't know. I can find all kinds of lies. But the point is, Josephus Flavius is written into the historical timeline for a reason. He takes on the Gens Flavia name. That later becomes very important because there is one city where all the supposed Caesars and emperors are going to come from, to include Constantine, and they're all from Gens Flavia, and they're all from the same family. And that is the so-called Jewish Josephus infiltrated this family somehow. Okay, if you're with me, this is so complicated to lay down. What they've done now is they've taken the holistic approach to nature— and convinced everyone that it's gods and all these other things. And you don't need the luminaries, the seven full spectrum view of nature and the sun and the moon included in that seven. Now we only need the sun. And by the way, these special people high up in the army, they're going to go for Saul Invictus. And that's all there is. And everyone envies it. So later, 
the plebes or the low foot soldier. Guess what? We've got a version of Saul Invictus that you lowlifes can take part in. It's Mithraism, which, by the way, has been a secret society since Lord knows when. So everybody's all in. And by the way, it ends up being men and women. This is the beginning of the mind takeover of religion or by people with the intent of using banking of religion to take over a world. And it's hard to even fathom that if this truly did happen a thousand or more years ago, that a long game could be played like that. And I don't know how you ever answer that, but we can see what's happened here. And when we show you how Mithraism becomes the Vatican, there's little doubt. And how come that's not common knowledge? I would ask. The worship of soul evolved as a character with the later importation of various sun cults from Syria. The Roman emperor Elagabalus, who reigned from AD 218 until 222, built a temple to him as Sol Invictus on the Palatine and attempted to make his worship the principal religion at Rome. The Emperor Aurelian, who reigned from 270 to 275, later reestablished the worship and erected a magnificent temple to Sol in the Campus Agrippa. The worship of Sol as special protector of the emperors and of the empire remained one of the chief imperial cults until it was replaced by Christianity. Okay, so I know when we talk about these things, people are thinking it in a much different way than I've come to think about it because we've been taught. That when you, when these certain buzzwords like sun worship up, you're evil. You've been mind raped, basically. Just use your mind to think about what's true. Is the sun important? Without the sun, do we have nature or food or warmth or light? So you've already answered your own question in two seconds flat. The sun is damn important. So I'll ask some simple questions. When you say the word SOL to talk about the sun, is there any differentiation? Is it completely uh, an independent idea from the soul, S-O-U-L, of a human being? Is it? You put it together. Because I would suggest to you all day long that the two are intricately tied and that that used to be commonly known. But what you are looking at here is the consolidation of religious power and the wholesale gutting of the true Roman aristocracy by the families previously mentioned, and it's being done through sun worship, and it's not that hard. You know why? Because if you go to Syria, guess what? They're worshiping the sun. If you go to anywhere, Earth, and pop in, what are they interested in? The sun. Why are they interested in the sun? Because they don't like nighttime, and they like fruit, and they like being alive, and they like being warm, and I could go on and on and on. It doesn't take a genius to put these things together. So that's kind of how insidiously genius this is when they begin to flip everything away from what it ever was, a holistic view of nature to the sun is what matters. And that will be flipped directly into the Vatican. And so let's see, we have the first note. So this is a, an idea pulled from the secret society of Moses that I talked about. So here's a note. This superior being is given the generic name, the great architect of the universe. G-A-O-T-U. In other words, there's a shuffling of the word goat with an extra U in there, which, as we have discovered, is the same name that the Pythagoreans attributed to the sun, whose symbol always appears in the east of Masonic temples, along with the images of pagan divinities such as Saturn, Minerva, and Hercules. Here's where it all comes to perversion in our time. It's no longer tied to nature in our minds. It's no longer for the benefit of all living beings, and that's off the rails. 
because I'm here to tell you that the sun is here for the benefit of all living beings. Matter of fact, it makes it possible and that nature is here for the benefit of all living beings because it gives us every damn thing we will ever need to survive whatever our lifetime will be here. So that's an important thing to think about. And we all know that the great architect or that idea is pulled straight up into masonry, although we just pulled it with a footnote from the book mentioned back to supposed Pythagoras. And there's also one of the early echoings of the perverseness of the goat idea. So we're almost to the top of the hour, and this is a good break point because we're going to get into Mithra. Um, and this is a so-called cult or a secret society that I think is primarily within the military ranks and maybe at first only upper ranks. And, you know, this is the idea of the killing of the bull. Remember that old HBO show about Rome and they show him gutting the bull and bathing in the blood? That's where all this comes from. And it's directly tied to the supposed era of Taurus the bull. In the same way, we can look at modern Hebrews who are still blowing the ram's horn, signifying their ancient tie to the age of Aries. These things are indisputable when you begin to look at why are these things here. And and Egypt's problematic on so many levels, I'm not even going to use that as an example. But there's similar things going on there when you see the the rams and, and the bulls and the apian bull and all these other things. That's what's going on. And up into the era that you and I have been made habit to believe in is the age of the fishes, right? And everything we can show all day long that Christianity, even so many things in the Vatican or the word none in Hebrew, I think means fish or something like that. I've forgotten. It's all a thread we can fall through. But how is it that every age got tied to the sky clock except for ours? We're currently, as far as I know, most of us have no freaking clue or provable way to prove when the actual age change is or what certainly the age is that we are in. And that brings us to a conundrum in our time because I can show you all day long. We're switching to air ideas from water ideas. But the problem is, is that because the powers that run this world can flip it artificially? They can get us there sooner than we needed to be? Or should we have been there earlier? You see what I'm getting at here? completely discombobulated from the natural world. And that creates human beings that are a bit like babies. They're not even in touch with or part of the very place that made them, that they will go back to, and that they require for their existence to the point that the apex of what we call nature, the sun, you're now an evil individual going to hell if you appreciate the sun, which is the apex idea in the natural world. Jason, anything you want to add before I wrap up? Well, we have two concepts here we want to make sure that everyone understands. The first one is that the concept of the sun was extremely important, obviously, and had its beginnings going back as far as archaeologists have been able to find as far as what Rome was and what Rome became. The second is just how important the sky clock truly is and this concept of the ages. Who knows exactly how far back these things were invented, but you go from the current age, which is the Piscean age, before that is Taurus the bull, before that is Aries the ram. So over 6,000 years, we have these concepts minimally ingrained throughout all these different cultures being incredibly important. How long ago were these things even invented? Because obviously there were ages before that, but these symbols are woven through many different cultures. It's not just a singular thing. It's not just Roman. It's not just Greek. So obviously the importance of the sky clock and the zodiacal signs were ingrained through many, many, many ancient cultures. 
Right. Which means Gemini, hint, 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 would precede the age of Taurus the bull. And we're looking at the founding of Rome with twins. So is there a Gemini going on? Uh, there's a lot of people that tell you the Gemini idea is critically important in what's happened in our world and that somehow Gemini is intricately tied to the United States and the twin tower ideas, of course, is going to wrap into this. But you can look up how long one of these ages is um, specifically. If you want to know, it's not hard to do to figure out what a zodiacal age is, but this has always mattered. And how was it that we were so easily perverted into a new habit where we live in a world where we all know that it's hot right now because it's summer and pretty soon all the leaves going to fall off the trees and pretty soon for a lot of people, it will be frozen to the point where you ain't growing nothing. And if you don't have food, you're going to have to kill things. And pretty soon spring will come and the largest release of energy will happen. And then before long, we'll be back up to the height of the power of the sun at the solar equinox or a solar solstice in the high point of summer. What causes that? The sun causes that primarily. It's all of nature working together, but there's no way we can ever separate the importance of the two main players of the sky clock in our area, the sun and the moon. The Great Barrier Reef, what is it? The th three or four days after the full moon in November, every single year, the largest body of living things, so the claim is, spawns. Why is that? Because the sky clock. So how was it that we have come so far away from what it means to be a human being and to appreciate not only what made us, which is cited straight out of Christian literature, you, in fact, are of the dust and you're going to return right back to it. If that isn't the ultimate statement of informing you of what you are, where you will go physically and what keeps you alive here, I don't know what is. And yet we've all been given such an unhelpful new habit. And it wasn't that difficult as far as I can tell. But that brings hour one of episode 300 to a close. When we come back, we're going to jump in on Mithra, um, which was a secret society before it gets implemented into the changeover we're going to show you, which basically goes from worshiping all of nature to worshiping the sun, a spectrum of nature, to Mithraism, to the Vatican, and on and on it goes. Anyhow, join us at crow777radio.com for our 2, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. And I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. And maybe we can start to lift up this year. That would be a great thing if we could do it because, man, we got to break some habits. There it is, man. Cheers.
is the enemy of knowing.